I wonder when you've got a big decision in life to make, who do you go to? Who do you ask for advice? Do you go to your friends? Do you go to your family? Perhaps if you're a little bit younger and you've, you've got parents, perhaps you say, Mom, Dad, what, what do you think of this? A couple of years ago, I got a phone call um, saying, would you come over to church as somebody wants to talk to you? Now, this happens fairly regularly, that somebody just walks in and wants to talk to me or talk to Chris or whoever's around. And this particular person came in and I made them a drink and we sat in the prayer room and they said, Vicar. <laughs> I thought they're not actually going to have a, a conversation about church titles, so I just took it. Vicar. I need you to tell me what to do. I thought, well, this will be an interesting one. (laughs) This will be an interesting one. So we have a conversation, and it turns out that this person had a huge life-changing decision to make. They were in limb, possibly for a couple of weeks, and then they were moving on, and they were thinking about emigrating to the other side of the world. But they couldn't make the decision. So they said again, Vicar, (laughs) I need you to tell me what to do. So we had this conversation and I tried to do the old thing of saying, well, what do you feel is the right thing? What do you want to do? What, what do other people who know you speak into your life? But no, this conversation kept on coming back to that line. I need you to tell me what to do. And I thought, this isn't going anywhere. I, so I eventually said, look, I'm not going to tell you what to do. That is a long, long way beyond what I would ever be comfortable in doing with anybody. I'll pray for you. The God will help you to know what to do, but, but that's all I can do. They weren't very happy with that, but I did pray, and they went, and I never saw them again. <laughs> but it just highlights. <laughs> Sometimes we want somebody to tell us what to do, don't we? Sometimes we want somebody to have the final word over our life and to say, this is what you need to do. Just hold that question in the back of your mind. Who has the final say in your life? Who is the final word? Just before Claire and I got married, um, we bought our first house, which turned out actually to be quite a good decision in the long run. Um, But I was, how old? 23, 24, and Claire was 19. Um, We were quite young. And so when we were buying this house, we wanted other opinions into the mix. So I remember my mum and dad coming round. Would my mum and dad give this house the thumbs up? My brother, who's a builder, would he give it the thumbs up? Was it subsiding or was the roof about to blow off? But we were looking for other people to kind of abdicate that final word to and say, would somebody else speak into our lives? I think as far back as we can trace human history, people have always tried to find something else to speak into their lives. Something else, if you like, to have a final word. Sometimes it's just seeking good advice. Don't hear me wrong this morning. It's good to seek advice. It's good to seek wisdom from our friends and family. But people have sought advice from the stars, haven't they? People seek advice from gods with a small g. They seek it from the dead. They seek it from trinkets and from tea leaves and from almost all kinds of sources. Who will be the final word? Mike, if we could have the PowerPoint up. Today we're starting a new series and we're going to be working our way through the book of Hebrews, which is one of the longer of the the New Testament letters. It's the most incredible book and I hope as we go through it, you'll get a real love for for the writing that is in 
the book of Hebrews. There's some interesting stuff in it as well. So we'll be on a bit of a roller coaster over the next few weeks. So just a bit of an intro to this book. Written sometime before AD 70, most scholars agree that this is the case. Um, we'll see why as we go through the book, but that appears to be um, what's the, what, what is the case. It's written to Jewish Christians, hence the title, the letter to the Hebrews, people who know their Old Testament, people who know um, a lot of the backstory of what God has already done. So as we go in, expect loads of Old Testament references. Loads of Old Testament imagery coming in. If you've got a church Bible in front of you in a moment when we turn to Hebrews 1, you'll see that you also need copies of your Dead Sea Scrolls available. So you can bring those with you next week as well. Who is it written by? Well, this is the interesting one. It doesn't say. And nowhere in the New Testament does it give any hints. And the early church didn't seem to know either. Oregon, writing in about 240, said, The Lord alone knows. And that's probably as good an answer as we're going to get. A bit later on, people started to say, well, is it by Paul? And if you've got a King James Bible, it will label it as the epistle by Paul to the Hebrews. But that's a later tradition. It's not an early one. Some people have said it's by Apollos or Barnabas or the husband and wife team about Aquila and Priscilla. But the Lord knows. And that's where we have to rest. But what we do know is that very early on in the life of the church, people realized this book was inspired by the Holy Spirit that this was scripture, that this was God speaking to the church. And it became um, important to the church very early on. What's it about? Well, if we want to say anything that the book of Hebrews is about, it's Jesus is greater than, and then whatever it is that comes next. So this week, we're going to see um, in the passage that Jesus has a name that is greater than that of the angels. And we're not talking about Mike and Barbara here. But a name that is greater than that of the angels. We'll also see that Jesus is greater than Moses. That Jesus is greater, he fulfills and brings about a new and a better way, a new covenant. So that is really what the book is about. So let's dive in. If you've got a church Bible in front of you, we're going to read Hebrews chapter 1. It's on page 1136 if you've got a church Bible. And it's entitled, God's Final Word his son. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. In speaking of angels, he says he makes his angels spirits and his servant flames of fire. But about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. 
You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And not all angels, ministering spirits, sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Amazing words, aren't they? Amazing words. What we find, um, certainly in those first four verses, which are the bits we're going to focus on really this morning, is in some ways quite similar to the beginning of John's Gospel, where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. It's quite sort of similar stuff. And it's what a lot of people have said, is magisterial language. It's the language. You know how we have language for different kinds of things? And if you're reading a legal document, you know you're reading a legal document. You know it's not a cartoon or a comic. And the people reading this book in the first century would have thought, This sounds like the language of the Roman Empire. This sounds like the kind of stuff that Caesar would have said about himself. But actually what the writer is doing is said, this is about Jesus. Not that bloke in Rome who thinks he's a god, but Jesus who is actually God. And then what we find in these first few verses is this huge broad sweep that almost takes in the whole gospel, if you like, in three verses. It's broad brushstrokes, there's not a lot of detail, But it reminds us of who Jesus is, the power that he has, and how he claimed and was and is God. Verses 5 to 14, we're not going to spend um, really any time on this this morning, but the the second part then goes through um, a series of Old Testament passages to, to sort of point us to the fact that Jesus is superior to the angels. The reason for that is we may know angels from the narrative accounts around Christmas. But in the first century, there were lots of Jewish books written about angels. And angels was sort of a big thing. And so it could have been tempting for these early Christians to think Jesus is just another angel. Whereas, in fact, what the writer says is, no, put all that to one side. Jesus is God. He is God's final word. Don't get sidetracked into thinking he is only an angel. So let's look at these opening verses. And we'll do this in a bit of detail this morning. Now, forgive me. I will sound like a bit of a one-trick pony this morning, because the more time I've spent in this passage, the more I kept thinking, the only thing that I've really got to say this morning is, is Jesus the final word in your life today? So excuse me if I keep coming back to that, but that's where we're, we're starting, and that's where we're heading. So we get these opening words, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, and many times, and in various ways. I don't know about you, but it's incredible that God desires to speak to us at all, isn't it? That God longs for relationship, that God longs to communicate. And if you read through the, the Bible, you'll actually find right from the first days that God is seeking out relationship. Back in the Garden of Eden, you get Adam and Eve, and even after things have gone wrong, you, you get this beautiful sort of image of God walking in the cool of the day, seeking out Adam and Eve to, to have friendship, relationship with them. But then we know the account, it all goes wrong and things start to fall apart. But God hasn't finished with his creation. He keeps speaking. He keeps calling after people, running to people, longing to reach out to people. And so we get, um, a bit later on, we get Abraham. This man who lived in Ur of the Chaldeans in what is in modern-day Iraq. Who didn't, from the best of our knowledge, know a lot about God, if anything about God. And suddenly God calls him and says... Come on a journey with me. And so starts the great rescue plan that would lead to Jesus. 
Right through the Old Testament, we see God speaking again and again through prophets, through priests, through kings, through poets, through musicians, through miracles, through the parting of seas. He speaks through acts of judgment, but also through merciful acts of rescue. And he keeps speaking, and he keeps revealing more of himself. Tom Wright suggested, actually, what we have in the Old Testament is, if you like, a series of sketches of what God is like. And they get more and more detailed. And God keeps bringing these, these images of himself to his people and calling people back to himself. Over recent months, I found it really interesting to watch the building where it progress. And um, if you've been in church over the past year or so, you'll have, you'll have seen uh, Mervyn's original architectural drawings. Mervyn sat there in the corner. Not listening at the moment. <laughs> Deep in ponderous thought. And um, these amazing drawings that Mervyn did of what things would be like coming later. We then got to those images that I think, Chris, where did you get those images from? Those computerized images? A freelancer in India who produced these most beautiful computerized images of what the church would look like. But they were only pictures, weren't they? They're not the final reality of what is coming. Now, you can go into the foyer. You can feel the carpet. You can lie down on the carpet if you want. You can smell the paint that has been put on the walls. We've gone from imagery, and it's like this, to reality. And what we sort of have, and it isn't just an analogy, is that we have moved in Jesus from God saying, it's going to be like this, it's going to be like this, it will look like this, to this is what it is. Jesus, the final revelation of God to us. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The final word, God come in flesh among us. You know, as humans, we, we spend a lot of time searching, don't we? And a lot of time searching for things. Um, a couple of years ago now, we had to replace our car. I think I've told you about our previous car that had a sort of affection to going into the garage. And it used to like to spend time, more time there than it did at home. And we eventually found that this wasn't a good relationship for us and the car, so it had to go. Um, and we were looking around for a new car. But the problem was, in looking for a new car, is we hadn't decided what we wanted. Not really. All we knew is we had to have a car that would fit the dog cage in the boot. So when that's the only thing you're looking for, you've got an awful lot of looking to do. And so practically every day off for a series of weeks, we were trawling around car dealerships. Now, anyone enjoy doing that? It's not really the most, a few nods. It's all right if you're just going to one or two, but when you've gone through every car manufacturer you can possibly think of, it starts to wear a little bit thin. And I can actually remember one night going, sitting um, on the computer, thinking, have I missed any car manufacturers? You know, does Isuzu do a car that would be suitable? You know, these car manufacturers that you see a car about once every three years. And you start looking, and you, you search broader and broader and broader. And then came the glorious day when we found a car that would do. But you know what was so amazing is that once you found it, you stopped looking. Once you found it, the search ends. The final word, if you like, is spoken over the car when actually you sign on the dotted line and you pick the car up. The Old Testament will tell us that just as God was reaching out to people, so people were also longing for more of God. If you read the Psalms, you'll find time and time again people searching after God. Psalm 119 verse 81, my soul 
languishes for your salvation. Psalm 42 verse 2, my soul thirsts for the living God. Psalm 143 verse 6, my soul longs for you as a parched land. Time after time, people searching, longing after God to be in their lives. Then if we fast forward to the ministry of Jesus, we find Jesus sat by a well in the heat of the day, talking to a Samaritan woman. And we get some beautiful words that then Jesus says to her. She's thinking about water, about what comes out of the well, and he says this. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him shall never thirst. For the water that I will give in him will become in him a well of water that springs up to eternal life. In Jesus, the searching, the longing for a final word is over. This is what the writer of the Hebrews would encourage us to think about. It's over. God has been revealed in Christ. Now, some would say of Jesus, well, how arrogant, Jesus. How can you say that you are the only way to God? How can you say that you are the final word? And it's true, many people since Jesus' day and before Jesus' day have claimed to speak on behalf of God. Many people have said, well, I'm the final word. No, I'm the final word. And offered in very contradictory ways. But think on it for a moment. If this passage is to be believed, and I believe it is to be believed, Jesus is the exact representation of God. He is God himself. Who else can add anything to God once he has lived amongst us? Who else can add to God once God himself has been revealed? C.S. Lewis famously said in Mere Christianity, and if you've been on the Alpha course, you'll have probably already come across this quote, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. Do you believe it? Do you believe what Jesus says about himself? Do you believe what the writer to the Hebrews says about Jesus being God's final word? If you do believe it, does it bring you security? Does it bring you peace in our troubled world? You know, we've sung my lighthouse. You bring peace in our troubled sea. Do you believe that that is what Jesus brings this morning? Now, God is still speaking. What the writer says here doesn't mean that God has no longer wants to speak to us. And God still speaks through various ways, through prophets and poets and songs and preaching, through testimony and words. But he doesn't speak any longer to reveal who he is in the sense of saying anything more about who his nature is. He just speaks to encourage us to become like him and to follow more closely in his ways. Verse 2, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. Jesus is the Lord of creation. He is God's first word and God's last word, the Alpha and the Omega. What I love in that sentence is that word also. Um, you know, my also's in life. If somebody said, what did you do the other day? I'll say, oh, I did X, Y, and Z. I also went to Sainsbury's. <laughs> Jesus' also is that he made the universe. It's a bit of a different also than the kinds of also that we tend to live with. But what we have in these verses is um, really, in four words, the basis for reality. The basis for everything 
that we see. This is not a scientific manual. This is not about how, but it's about the who. Who is the origin of the universe? It's Jesus. God's agent of creation through whom, through his very breath, the world was made. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. You know, there's no wriggle room in this passage. For those who would say Jesus is a bit like God, but not quite. Or Jesus is just a very good teacher who had an extra bit of God's spirit in him. Jesus is the exact representation, the imprint. And the language that's used there, um, if if you're into coins at all, um, coins carry an imprint on them, don't they? And if you've got a coin um, in our country, they carry the queen's head on it. Um, or something that is meant to look a bit like the Queen. I'm never quite sure that they actually do. But every coin that is minted at the same time will have the exact imprint. They'll all be the same. That was the same in the days of the Roman Empire. So every coin would have the emperor's head on, and each one that had been made in the same time would look exactly the same. Jesus is exactly the same as God, because he is God himself. There is no wriggle room here. What we see is the radiance of God's glory. And so, too, we are called to radiate Jesus to the world around us. Sustaining all things by his powerful will. Jesus is both creator and sustainer. You know, we live in a world of insecurity, don't we? I think one of the the things that I've really noticed about this coronavirus is just the sense of fear that it's bringing um, into communities, into society. But that's just one thing, isn't it? You know, we we put the news on and we hear all about climate change. We hear about flooding, but we also hear about drought. We hear about fires raging in Australia, and then weeks later we're hearing about the same places being flooded out. And it just seems that we live in a world of great insecurity. Who has the final word on our planet? Is it the United Nations? The World Health Organization? Trump? Boris? Greta? I don't know. Who has the final word? Who has the final say? Well, the writer would tell us that even in our sin-marred, broken world that is longing for God to come back, for Jesus to return, and to make everything new, even now, Jesus is Lord of creation. Jesus is the one who holds the whole universe in his hands. Now, that doesn't mean we abdicate our responsibility to look after the planet. That doesn't mean we don't care passionately about social justice and about what we can do to make the lives of other people better. Not at all, not for one moment. But what it does is it means that we don't panic. We don't need to live in fear because we're held in the palms of the hand of God's final word. The planet is held until Jesus returns in glory. Verse 3 again, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. You know, as we go through the book of Hebrews, we'll hear a lot about Jesus bringing purification, about Jesus as the great sacrifice. What it says here is that Jesus is the final word when it comes to being forgiven, when it comes to being able to start again in life. Jesus is God's last word. We won't unpack that anymore this morning, but we will come back to it as we go through the book. And so we're left with lots of final words that God has this morning. Jesus is the final revelation of God. He shows us what God is like. Jesus is the one who has spoken creation into being. He is the final word in sustaining the universe. And Jesus is the final word in offering us forgiveness. 
When I was younger, I think both physically younger and younger as a Christian, um, it may be an age thing, but I, th- I think I used to be quite sort of insecure about making decisions, about thinking about life, about final words. And I was always asking people, what, what should I do? What should I think? What should I say? What should I be? Now, whether it is just that I've got older, you know, like a, a cheese maturing gently somewhere or other, or whether it is about spiritual maturity. But I think one thing that God has been teaching me over the years is to trust him, to let him be the final word in my life. That doesn't mean I'm not going to start stop asking people for advice. It doesn't mean I'm not going to seek wisdom. But that I don't want to abdicate that to other people. That it's Jesus who is and will always be the final word. Now, I don't know what you're facing this morning. I don't know what decisions you're facing. I don't know what your life is going through. But is Jesus the final word in it? Or are you trying to make that somebody else? Because there are two dangers that I still sometimes fall into. The first one is, is that I want to be the final word. Thank you very much. I don't want Jesus to have the final word. I will sort it out. And everything will be, well, it won't be wonderful. It'll probably go horribly wrong. Because I am not God. I do not see the end from the beginning. I do not know what is best for me. But that can be really easy to do. You know, if, you, if today, if you're trying to be the final word in your own life, can I encourage you to come again at this passage and say, Jesus, would you be the final word? The one I can trust in. Or perhaps, actually, this morning, you don't want to be the final word. You want somebody else to take that responsibility from you, but you don't want to give it to Jesus. And so you're like the person who came to see me who said, Vicar, I need you to tell me what to do. You just want somebody to guide your life for you. If that is you this morning, can I encourage you not to look at other people? Yes, by all means, seek advice, but not the final word. But seek Jesus, who is God's final word to us. So I just want to leave you with that question. Who is the final word in your life? Is it Jesus? Is it yourself? Is it someone else? Just spend a moment in reflection as the music group come up and then they'll lead us in a couple of final songs. Let's just pray. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Lord, I want to pray that you'll help us to rest in confidence in those words this morning. To bring our securities, our vulnerabilities, our sense of wanting to be in control. And to lay them at your feet. And to acknowledge you and worship you for who you are. Jesus, the name that is above every name. Lord, help us not just to be hearers of your word, but people who put it into practice. For Jesus' sake, amen.